Please turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to the Gospel of John, John chapter 11, verse 45. I think I said 44 earlier, but John 11, 45 through 57 will be our sermon text for this morning. And before we read that together, let's pray together. Our Father, we do thank you for your word, uh, which is true and right and good. Uh, We thank you that you have not left us to ourselves, but that you've given us your word, that we might know you, uh, that we might uh, know Jesus, uh, your son, whom you have sent. And we uh, know because Jesus said that this is eternal life, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And so we pray, Father, that, that we would know you through the scriptures that we would have life through faith in Jesus' name. Pour out your spirit to that end this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. John 11, beginning in verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what Jesus did, that is, raising Lazarus from the dead, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Sometimes people say things like, if only I could have seen Jesus, if only I could have seen his miracles, if I could have seen his resurrection, then I would believe. See, we think we each individually are the ultimate arbiter of truth, and so we just need more facts. The thing is, though, seeing is not the answer. The reason people don't believe is not because they didn't see. Bertrand Russell's quip is simply not true. There is plenty of evidence. The heavens declare the glory of God. Of course, that brings up a question. If the problem is not, not enough evidence, then what is it? If seeing is not the answer, why not and what is? 
Well, this morning we're going to look at uh, the question, why seeing is not the answer, and we'll see four things in our text. First, not everyone who sees believes. Second, fear stops us from seeing rightly. Third, fear calls us to sabotage ourselves. And four, only Christ's love can cast out fear. This is why seeing is not the answer. First, not everyone who sees believes. The Gospel of John, interestingly, is a book of signs. In John chapter 2, John does his first miracle, turning the water into wine. Uh, John calls it the first of Jesus' signs by which he manifested his glory. And John goes on to say, as a result, his disciples believed in him. Later in the same chapter, we are told that many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But quickly, the signs themselves become a source of controversy. Jesus is healing on the Sabbath and claiming that God is his Father, and these are his Father's works. And people become divided. John 9, 16, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. In in John 10, there was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Who I listen to him. Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? And then we come to John 11. Jesus performed his most amazing sign yet. He raised Lazarus from the dead. A man, a dead man, got up from the grave and walked out. In verse 45, some saw the sign and believed. Verse 45 says, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. That's what we would expect to happen. They saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. How could you not believe in him? But... As usual, this was not true of everyone. Verse 46, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Uh, Again, the the people are divided. Uh, The religious leaders, though, for the most part, they, they actually know where they stand. They don't like it. Verses 47 to 48, so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? This man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And notice they freely admit that Jesus does many signs. They've seen the signs. No one can deny it. But that doesn't mean they join his fan club. And so this first point is an obvious one, but it needs to be said, not everyone who sees believes. We often think seeing is the key. Seeing is believing, we say, but that is just simply not true. So why seeing is not the answer? First, seeing is clearly not the answer because not everyone who sees believes. Second, seeing is not the answer because fear stops us from seeing rightly. Have you ever watched one of uh, of those scenes in a movie or a TV show where some kid is lying in bed in the dark and the wind is howling outside making strange noises and maybe lightning is flashing casting strange shadows 
And as the kid looks around the room, he sees scary monsters in the corner and glowing eyes lurking everywhere. And then mom comes in and switches on the lights and suddenly all of those things that were so scary just a minute ago are shown to be harmless things. Dirty clothes draped over a lamp, a fluffy stuffed animal on the floor, reflective tape on a skateboard. Nothing dangerous or scary is in the room. And you know what happened, right? The, the kid's fear caused his imagination to run wild. Uh, he saw those scary things even though they weren't there. Fear has this tendency to stop us from seeing things rightly. And notice the fear of the religious leaders in verse 47 and 48. Again, these verses. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. What are they afraid of? They are afraid that everyone will believe in Jesus and they are afraid that the Romans will take away their place in their nation. At first, they're afraid that everyone will believe in Jesus. Why is that a fear? Well, in part, because they want everyone to follow them. They are the religious leaders, after all. They have control. They have the power. If people start listening to this guy, they lose out. Notice how what we fear is wrapped up with what we love. They fear people believing Jesus because they love the praise of men. Jesus said back in John 5, the religious leaders loved the glory that came from one another and did not seek the glory that came from God. In Matthew 23, Jesus says they love the best seats in the house and they love their shows of religion. If Jesus wins the day, all of that is out and they don't like it. The second, they are afraid of the Romans. Uh, they are afraid of Jesus starting a messianic movement. And there were moments where it looks like that's about to happen, right? In John 6, the people were about to take Jesus by force and make him king. In John 12, they will go before Jesus crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. In the end, the crime that will stick against Jesus is king of the Jews, that will be the crime that is written over Jesus' head in three languages for all to see. And so the religious leaders are afraid of Jesus starting a populist messianic movement. If the Romans get wind that there is someone claiming to be a king of the Jews, well, that would mean the end, the end of the Jewish nation. The Romans would come in and squash the movement and the whole nation along with it. The Jewish people are living under Roman occupation. They're living in the proverbial powder keg, and it would only take one wrong move by one pretend Messiah to set the whole city on fire. Again, notice what the religious leaders love. They love to be on top, at least on top of their people. They love the current system, including the temple, our place, and the nation of Israel, our nation. They love things as they are. Because of that, they can't see Jesus for who he is. Hey, anybody who might mess things up, anybody who might shatter the status quo, anybody who might upend the uncomfortable peace they currently experience between Jew and Roman, no, Roman they, they don't want that. And so they can only see Jesus as a threat, an obstacle, a problem to be solved. I, I wonder if what you are afraid of stops you from seeing Jesus for who he is. What are you afraid of? 
Uh, Where do your fears and your anxieties rear their ugly head? Uh, What do you love and want to protect at all costs? What would you give anything to keep safe? Scripture would call those things idols. They are good things and good desires, but they have somehow been distorted and become controlling things and controlling desires. Are there places in your life where you would say, well, we shouldn't go overboard with this whole Jesus thing? Places where devotion to something else trumps your devotion to Jesus. Well, those controlling fears, those controlling loves, controlling commitments, they will stop you from seeing Jesus rightly. See, once we get protective, once we get self-protective, we see others, even Jesus, as a rival, an enemy, or at best, a deity to be placated so we can keep our life as is. At that point, we're not concerned about the truth, just the status quo. And this is where the chief priests and the Pharisees are. Fear and self-love stop them from seeing Jesus. And it's not that they can't see, literally. It's, It's not that they don't see the miracles and the signs. They do. But they refuse to see them for what they are. Their underlying commitment to self stops them from seeing anyone whose very existence challenges that commitment to self. And so while they can't deny Jesus' miracles, they explain them away. Earlier in John, they say Jesus has a demon. In the other Gospels, they specifically attribute Jesus' miracles to demons. In Matthew 9, the Pharisees say, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. Now, we would explain Jesus' miracles away differently today. We would say things like, oh, that's scientifically impossible. Or there's no proof besides the eyewitness testimony of the Gospels. We explain them away because we don't want to accept the authority that they imply. If Jesus is who he said he is and did what the eyewitnesses said he did, suddenly I'm not in charge of my life anymore. The world is not about my glory and good. That's a little too personal, a little too intrusive. I'd rather live in denial than see that kind of Jesus. And so this is why seeing in and of itself is not the answer. Not everyone who sees believes, so there must be more going on. And part of that more is that fear, especially fear that comes from an underlying commitment to self. That stops us from seeing rightly, seeing clearly. And third, fear causes us to sabotage ourselves and for that matter, other people. See, they are afraid of losing their positions of prominence. So they refuse to see Jesus as the Messiah Instead, they explain away his signs. So what can they do? And that's the question they ask themselves in verse 47. What are we to do? Caiaphas, the high priest, at this critical moment says this in verse 49. He says, you know nothing at all. He's saying, you guys are idiots. The way forward is clear for Caiaphas. The wisdom of this world, the way of worldly power, has one simple answer for obstacles. Get rid of it by force. And so verse 49, he says, you know nothing at all. And verse, 40, he con- or verse 50, he continues, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. See, he's saying if there is a chance that Jesus will upend our nation, if there is a chance that Jesus will incur the wrath of Rome, if there is a chance that Jesus will somehow diminish our influence, better that he should die and we should thrive. Let's get rid of him. Put him to death. This whole movement goes away. So they think. 
And here's the problem. They, they don't understand basic biblical logic. Basic biblical logic is this. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? In Matthew 21, Jesus tells a parable of a vineyard. The, the, the master plants a vineyard and leases it out to tenants. Eventually, the master sends people to collect some of the produce. The tenants refuse to pay up. They beat, they kill, and they stone the servants. Finally, the master sends his son. Rather than pay up, the tenants take the son and kill him. And then Jesus says in Matthew 21, 40, when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And his hearers reply in Matthew 21, 41, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. And then Jesus says this, therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. Now, here's how this parable connects with this moment in John 11. Why is the vineyard taken away from the tenants? Because they reject the son. If they didn't reject the son, they would still have the vineyard. Well, here are the chief priests and Pharisees are afraid of what? They are afraid that the Romans will come and take away their place in their people. They are afraid that the Romans will take away the temple and the nation. They don't want the Romans to take away the kingdom. So they reject the son. And by rejecting the son, they lose the kingdom. If anyone would save his life, he will lose it. So when we live and act out of fear rather than trusting in God, rather than accepting his version of things, rather than walking by faith, we strive to save our lives and so we lose them. Only when we trust God and are willing to lose our lives for him will we find life as it was actually meant to be. But you might say, well, that's scary. <laughs> that means facing my fears. That means accepting trouble and hardship as normal. That means being willing to allow God to shake things up when the status quo suits me just fine. How can I do that? I'm, I'm too afraid to let God mess up with, uh, mess with my life. It's not perfect, but at least it's mine. I figured out how to make it work. I have no idea what God might do with it. How can I step forward when I'm so afraid? And that brings us to our final point. Here's why seeing is not the answer. Number one, not everyone who sees believes. That's clear. Number two, fear actually gets in the way of us seeing things for what they really are. And three, fear causes us to sabotage ourselves. When I interpret life wrongly, I end up shooting myself in the foot. My efforts to make my life work are often the very things that cause it to fall apart. And so forth, only Christ's love can cast out fear. The only way to see things for what they are is to see them through the eyes of faith and not fear. These religious leaders are worried about losing. And we do lose when we follow Jesus. We must lose our lives in order to find them. We must take up our cross and follow Jesus. We give up control or at least the illusion of it. We give up imagined, our imagined right to do as we please. And that's all scary. How can we move forward knowing the cost of discipleship only Jesus' love can cast out fear. Now, there is this wonderful moment here in this text. Caiaphas, Caiaphas, looking out for himself, is teaching his fellow religious leaders a lesson in politics. He says, come on, boys, here's the way you consolidate power. If Jesus is in our way, just get rid of him. 
Verse 50, he says, it's better for you that one man should die for the people rather than that the whole nation should perish. We're all in for one suffering in place of the many as long as we are not that one. Scapegoats are great as long as it's not me. But here's what John says next in verses 51 and 52. John says of Caiaphas, the high priest who wants to put Jesus to death to get rid of him as a political expediency, He says, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. What's most interesting to me here is the principle for interpreting prophecy. See, we tend to read the Bible looking for a strict authorial intent. What did John mean? What did Moses mean? What did Isaiah mean? And we limit the meaning of the text to what the human author could have reasonably understood. And John does no such thing. Caiaphas is pontificating on a political expediency. John says, as high priest that year, the year that Jesus died, he was prophesying. And he didn't even know it. God was speaking through him. The Holy Spirit moved him to say these words. Did he understand what he meant? He didn't have a clue. Caiaphas didn't think that Jesus was the Lamb of God come to take away the sin of the world. He thought Jesus was a political scapegoat, not a substitute sacrifice of atonement. Right? That's dramatic irony. Here he is giving us the clue to the story, that the meaning of the whole, and he, he misses it. He has no clue what he's saying. Jesus would die for the nation. He would die to take away sin. He would die as a substitute sacrifice. He would die both for the nation of Israel, but not for them only, but also to gather into one all the children of God, including those Gentiles who are scattered abroad. Jesus will lay down his life as the good shepherd to gather his sheep, both from this sheepfold and others, to gather them into one flock, his flock. And the result for the sheep is the forgiveness of sins. He died for them and a place among God's people. If we follow Jesus, we we will lose. Matthew 16, Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever will save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake. That's what we must do. Lose our lives for Jesus' sake. But here's the promise. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is why perfect love casts out fear, as John says in one of his letters. Because once we know the love of Jesus, a love that secures for us forgiveness of sins and a place as God's children, we know that whatever we lose in this life, we have already gained what is most valuable and that cannot be taken away. Jesus continued in Matthew 16, 26, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul or what shall a man give in return for his soul? But what if you can gain your soul but have to forfeit the whole world? Uh, Jim Elliott, uh, someone I'm sure many of you know, martyred missionary said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. We are freed to see things for what they really are when we see Jesus' love. And we are freed to lose our place and lose our people because Jesus offers us a new place and a new people. He makes us into a temple. He is preparing for us a city. He is gathering us into one new people, the family of God. 
What are you afraid of? What are you holding on to? What do you love more than Jesus? Whatever it is, it will stop you from seeing things as they really are. And you will look at life through the lens of fear and you will be able, unable to risk all to follow Christ. Don't cling to the whole world and forfeit your soul. Turn from those created things, those good things that have become controlling things and give up your life and follow Jesus. He died that we might live and now he calls us to give up our life and find life in him. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you would help us to understand uh, what Jesus means when he calls us uh, to give up our life and find it in him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.